The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Leslie Picker and Scott Wapner. We are live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Carl and Jim both have this Friday morning off. Let's give you a look at futures. Of course, you heard Becky talking about um, we're looking for a higher open. We were at this time yesterday, and in fact, we got it, but things sort of changed as the day went along. Let's start with our roadmap, though, and those stocks that are in rally mode. The S&P would be on pace for what would be its third straight week of gains. This is Investors Digest, the latest batch of inflation data. Plus, Intel returning to profitability after two quarters of losses, sending shares surging in the pre-market. And the Bank of Japan shocking the global financial markets with its latest policy tweak. We've got the details. We'll start with the markets on this last trading day of the week. That much I know. Good Beyond job. that, I don't really have a lot, so I'm glad you two are here to help. At least you got that one. Yeah, okay. I got that one. It's all downhill. Uh, <laughs> we did not. Yesterday was Thursday. The statistically irrelevant Dow did not manage its 14-day streak to break the 1897 record. So there's that, unfortunately. And then, obviously, we had that very strong start yesterday in the Nasdaq, Scott. Uh, when you were on air later in the day, though, things had changed significantly. Well, you had the, the story out of Japan that BOJ was going to sort of tweak its policy, maybe tolerate higher rates. The, you know, our rates moved up a little bit, and then the market uh, ended up selling off. But this morning, it's all about the PCE, and rates are down. The market likes it because it really didn't upset the, the story that, and this path that we think we're on. Uh, guys, that the Fed is, you know, maybe takes another pause at the next meeting, and then there's only one in three chance right now of a November hike. So nothing that happened this morning in the data says, oh, wow, OK, maybe we need to rethink what the path is again for the Fed. Which is kind of the mindset and the fragility of the mindset currently is that any kind of volatility on either front could upset that. Um, but, you know, if you've got something that's kind of just a little bit off from estimates, a little bit in line with estimates, that is seen as a, a positive thing. Obviously, it's been a very big week for central bank news for earnings news, the BOJ uh, news this morning. Uh, very, very interesting in, in terms of what it means for U.S. bond markets because they're the largest uh, foreign owners of U.S. debt. So there's some thought that maybe there could be some repatriation if yields are allowed to go higher over in Japan. And what would that mean from kind of the Japanese selling off U.S. debt and putting their capital to work instead in their home country? Of course, as you say, Leslie, it's been a big week for earnings, and but today is no exception. Uh, we'll get to as many as we can, of course, P&G and Ford, Exxon, Chevron, Intel, T-Mobile, amongst some of the bigger names. 
But Scott, we've come off what would seem to be a pretty good week in terms of at least the big mega cap. Now we've yet to hear from Amazon and Amazon Apple. Amazon and Apple next week. Yeah, that's next week. But of course, we have digested Alphabet. Market liked it. Uh, 29% operating margin. Meta yesterday had a very warm reception, although as the day went on, the stock did not perform as well as it had in the earliest going. Microsoft, a bit less so, although generally speaking, not a bad quarter. You know, I'm just curious to sort of what your take is on what we've seen, on what the market has done with it. A lot of people yesterday, for example, still talking about Meta's multiple, given what expects to be accelerating revenue growth into the mid to high teens, and yet it trades below the market multiple. It's the knock you hear about the mega caps almost across the board. You look at an Apple, what is Apple, 31 times at this point, maybe Microsoft's 33. Um, but yet they keep, for the most part, living up to the hype. And you know what, what the relationship is between where interest rates have gone and how these stocks have done, higher rates haven't really been able to knock these stocks off of their the mantle, so to speak. And Michael Hartnett over at Bank of America today says real rates are not high enough yet, Leslie, to do that, yeah. to what he says, pop the AI bubble. Um, now, you can debate whether there is, in fact, an AI bubble or not, um, but nothing this week that we've gotten from an earnings perspective upsets the story in what has been a more broad market. That's the whole reason we're talking about the Dow at 13. Well, also, right? The streak was ended at 13, but the reason you got to 13 is because the market itself had broadened. Also, I don't know, maybe when I think about bubblish companies, I think of unprofitable ones. So if you've got high rates, but profitable companies that are that are driving uh, you know, that excitement to the upside in AI, how does that factor in? Uh, just kind of looking at, at earnings season, we're actually Please. halfway through. Um, and it's been a really good earnings season just in terms of beating consensus. 82% of reports have beat consensus on the bottom line. That's better than the 77% uh, five-year average and up five points just from last week alone. So this week has been a, a key driver here, especially with some of those big tech names. Um, but companies are exceeding expectations by a lesser margin than history. So by about 6.5% above expectations, below the 8.5 or 8.4% five-year average positive surprise rate. So uh, more companies exceeding, but I think going into this earnings season, and, and you guys could probably comment on this as well, there's been just a lot of downward revisions, a lot of lowering of expectations. So the companies were, were beating and still not even beating by as wide of a margin as they have yeah. in history. Hence, hence the market multiple has moved higher, and that seems to be a concern of any number of the strategists who come on who are perhaps less than constructive on the market from here. It's funny, Scott, I've heard a lot of them lately, and uh, of course they just kind of keep explaining themselves, and yet they, have, they haven't capitulated to a market that just kind of keeps powering and grinding higher. They haven't capitulated, but in some respects, let's just take Mike Wilson, for example, over at Morgan Stanley. It's not like he's all of a sudden bullish, but he's realistic enough to say, as he did earlier in the week, I think at the very beginning of the week, we're wrong. Mm -hmm. We did not see earnings holding up to the degree in which they, they have. We didn't see the AI bubble, uh, excuse me, you know, the, well, what, what some would say is a bubble, <laughs> but the AI boom uh, is, is better said. Um, to the degree that, that that's carried the market higher in the Magnificent Seven stocks either. So it's kind of like if you see the writing on the wall, uh, you may ignore it for as long as you can ignore it, but at some point you have to acknowledge, you know, the call was wrong. Now, whether those types of strategists actually get more bullish remains to be seen, as in some cases the narrative has changed and that the market's been in this uptrend. You have a growing number of people who are now on the bullish side, which makes other 
folks nervous, see too many people joining the bullish brigade. Uh, but nonetheless, at least some of the more negative strategists have kind of seen the light. I wonder what those types of, you know, capitulations say about just the overall kind of market sentiment. You know, we just got through bank earnings, or at least for the big universals, and trading activity was really muted. And a lot of people blame that just on the fact that there's such lack of conviction about what's going to happen with the economy, what's going to happen with the direction of the markets, uh, especially in the in the thick markets, fixed income currencies and commodities. And so, you know, I think part of that has to do with just the strategist even being like, well, you know, this is this is not what I what I expected to happen. This is yeah. not what my regressions were telling me. But you know, here we are. Indeed, here we are. Uh, and as we said, of course, Scott, we have a lot of earnings to get to as well this morning, including Exxon. Chevron had already pre-released Ford, certainly something we may want to talk yeah. about as well. We start with oil, though. Um, oil's on track for its fifth week of gains, uh, David. It plays right to you on, on Exxon, as the drop in oil prices is obviously hurting the profits of Exxon and Chevron. Profits were down 56% at Exxon. Profits were down 48% at Chevron, uh, you know, you know Exxon better than anybody from the doc you did. Um, obviously, it's there's a good correlation there between mm-hmm. what's been happening in oil, notwithstanding the last four weeks. Uh, but in a, in a in a bigger picture, oil prices down hurts the profitability of big oil. No doubt. But they're still doing just fine. Yes, they are, uh, as they and, usually do. <laughs> and uh, both Darren Woods, who joined Squawk Box this morning. Uh, and Mike Worth, who joined us, if you recall, earlier in the week, we got a preview of Chevron's numbers. Remember when they extended Mr. Worth's contract for a period of years beyond the what had been the retirement age at Chevron, and they announced the departure of longtime CEO Pierre Breber. Um, we got a, a preview of that. But both Woods and Worth talking about a world that still needs an awful lot of what they're producing. Take a listen. I think this year we're going to see record high uh, oil oil demand. I expect that to be then uh, next year even be higher. So in, certainly in the short uh, to medium term, there continues to be a significant demand for, for oil and, and the products that come from oil, primarily because the world is growing and economic prosperity is improving all across the world. Of course, Mike Worth also making the point uh, when we spoke to him earlier this week, EVs are, are here. Mm-hmm. And over time, yes, that will dampen consumption of gasoline. But chemicals, plastics, ammonia, think about fertilizer. Mm-hmm. There are so many other uses for these products. Uh, and that's when you hear Woods talking about things like that. It's not just, of course, for automobiles or worth. And that's why you're still, and those who are very focused on climate change, clearly disappointed to hear the idea that we're going to produce more than we ever have. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, uh, just kind of looking at a, a superlative here, a third straight drop in profit, that's the longest decline since the 2014-2016 oil crash. So despite kind of relative stability on the oil front, I mean, obviously declines in the last five weeks or so, weaker nat gas prices, though, and shrinking returns from fuel sales. So the question, I think, remains when this kind of turns around for them. Is next quarter going to be the... Yeah, but they're still generating change. so much cash at this point. I think they and, return like $8 billion to And they're returning a lot. They're doing some of it. You know, I mean, they are doing some deals. Exxon did the deal with Denbury a couple of weeks ago. There's, um, uh, Chevron has done some deals in the Permian as well, increasing their footprint there. So, you know, they are, they are putting some of it at least back into trying to enhance production. But, of course, return of capital has been a key part really of this sector now for many years in terms of don't 
put a lot of it back towards future production as much as give it back to us. Mm. How much do you think we should be thinking about when it comes to the energy complex and what oil's doing as it relates to these questions about China, David, and, and where the recovery really is in terms of a global demand perspective? which could add to you know, this fifth week of gains we're seeing in oil, but take it on a much longer trajectory back up if you think that that recovery is going to start to take hold, because it's been so uneven and not anything close to, I think, what people expected it would be at this particular time. No, I mean, we, you know, we talk about it a lot, of course, the ex- expected recovery after COVID there it has not emerged the way it was anticipated in mm-hmm. China. Youth unemployment, of course, we talk about a great deal being over 20%. Hard to believe that number in many ways. Yeah. Uh, and always tough to get a full read on the Chinese economy. They did say they grew at, what, 5-2 or something along those lines, or that's where the World Bank still is in terms of their estimates as well. But you're right, Scott, and I don't know what that... You know, they're using a lot of Russian oil, of course, as you know. So that's helping fuel, sadly, uh, the money that uh, Putin needs to continue to wage war in Ukraine. But... Um, it is an important point as well, because if they do come back on as strong as they have in the past, conceivably that will increase consumption worldwide. Yeah. We've seen a little bit of that in the luxury names uh, over the course of the week. And, um, you know, the U.S. was actually the, the underperforming market, with the exception being Hermes, yes. uh, which showed sales and profit jumping uh, thanks to Birkenbacks. If you can believe, there's so uh, much demand for. I don't even know how much they cost. Like thirty, what is it, thirty thousand dollars? It has been Same interesting. As a car? I mean, why are you, look, why are you is, looking is, at I'm us? I'm looking at you. Yeah, I've never, I've never even seen a, a Birkin bag, let alone. I've seen it on in the movies. You haven't? You don't own one? Oh, I do not know. What do they go for? Do you know? I, I think it's like the price of a car, like ten thousand. They're saying in my ear. Okay. I think they go higher than that, though, right? Well, they have high resale value, so I, I guess see. it depends on oh, if you okay. buy it new. There you go. It's Somebody like just said or... 10000 in my ear. I think that's low. I think it's low, too. I think they were talking like a few years oh, yeah. ago. Yeah. Higher. Yeah. Way low. Higher. People, they don't know. Oh, I was thinking the price yeah, of a car. Our executive, senior executive producer has no idea. <laughs> what would he know about Birkenbads? <laughs> My producer, however, does know, and she told me much higher. Should we, you, um, since we're talking about higher prices, maybe we should talk about Procter & Gamble. Let's do it. The they, bring, the it prices, bring it back. Those prices <laughs> yeah. have stuck, Carl. Yeah. Have talk, stuck. Talk, about, talk about the range, right? Yeah. Of, of Birkin bags down to Pampers. Procter & Gamble Down to products. diapers. Uh, but seriously, they have pricing power, and uh, they continue to flex that muscle. And that is one reason why uh, you had the earnings, which were in their margins, which were strong, and the reason why... Uh, the stock looks the way it does, David. Operating cash flow, uh, $16.8 billion. Net earnings, $14.7 billion. That's fiscal year number. That's a full year number for the company. But again, because they also did report their full fiscal year 2023 net sales number of $82 billion. Uh, and that was up 2%. But you're right, organic sales and, and being pushed by price, they are not seeing people trade down to the extent that there had been no. a view there would. Unilever also, uh, Leslie was quite good on the branded products and not necessarily pushing down. We heard from Kenview a few weeks ago, different world to some extent, but nonetheless also saying that people largely stuck with the big branded names that come in more expensive. So Mondelez, yeah. higher prices there too. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you, can flex, you can flex it if you have the ability to raise prices and then your margins will, will stay intact. So, you know, while we're, well, I guess you could make the argument that the, you know, the Fed is winning on inflation. Um, there still is inflation in the system sure. for, for these kinds of companies that have the ability to raise prices. But when do they normalize, especially if consumer behavior hasn't changed at all? You know, they have no incentive to, to go back to... Not, until, you not know, until people really start 
not buying their products. Exactly. Which, which, which hasn't, hasn't occurred. They're not buying cognac, though, as we know They're from LVMH's in the United States. The cognac sales have fallen off. Scott's not serving it any longer at the end of his dinner parties. Nope. Trading cognac for Birkins. Tequila. And that's red hot. That's all day long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to wait till after dinner for that. All right, still to come. Uh, we're going to break down Intel's big quarter, sending shares higher in the pre-market. Let's take a look at futures as well. You did have that good uh, inflation data today. PCE was in line, and the stock market looks pretty good. Uh, 15 minutes before the open, Dow would open higher by 166, S&P by 30. More squawk on the street is straight ahead. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Intel shares, take a look. They are going to be up over 6%, it would appear. This after the company had an earnings beat, at least to the analysts who follow it. It returned to profitability. This after two straight quarters in which the company actually lost money. Now, not to get overly excited, non-GAAP net income was down 52% from a year ago. Revenue's down 15%. Uh, and any number of their business segments, including client computing, down 11.5, data center and AI, 13.9. It's just... All business segments, there was weakness, yes, right? Yes. It's yeah. just they did better than had been anticipated. And so it is being rewarded. Um, go back 20 years, as I've asked us to do, and you can, you can sort of see. That puts it in perspective. That's yeah. 10, and then we'll go back 20, and that's not much. That's, that's the fraying of a great, great American company right there. Mm. One of the key decisions along the way, perhaps, I think it was Paul Adelini when he said... Nah, Steve Jobs, that's okay. We, we don't need to provide <laughs> chips to your iPhone. We, we'll be fine. If, if there's a positive take, maybe it's, you know, maybe you can say PCs have bottomed. Yeah. Uh, and that's what they're going to hang on. And then it raises issues, too, about the story of the day, which we started with as we talk about big tech and looking in next week, uh, AI. And mm -hmm. whether, you know, Intel can be a real player in this new world of, of AI as it's been all about NVIDIA and then in some respects Broadcom. They cite competitive pressures, not necessarily related to AI, but AMD comes to mind. So there's been every reason to talk about all of these other names and not necessarily Intel. That's part of the problem that they have to figure out how to overcome. They do, and part of that has to do with just their manufacturing capacity, which they've been advancing. Uh, I think they're still a few years away from where they want to be on that front. Um, but some of the commentary from Pat Gelsinger has been that, you know, things will improve in the second half of the year, especially for personal computers where they uh, play heavily. And so I think the market, it, it's the kind of stock where the market's really just looking for some good news on that front. You can take a look there, even just over, that's just a year uh, in terms of how NVIDIA has distanced itself from every other company, of course. And there's a few years to take, take a look. You look at Intel there. I mean, um, 
you know, when you look at Intel over the last 20 years, you see the decline of American chip manufacturing, basically. Yeah. Uh, and to your point, they missed a couple of cycles on nanometers. Uh, Taiwan Semi uh, became the world's preeminent uh, manufacturer of the most advanced chips. Intel was, and then it wasn't. Um, Apple. And of course, Make Apple, Apple, right, making Apple its own makes chips. the M2 for, for, its, uh, for its MacBooks and, and the M1. They make their own chips. Samsung, obviously, as well, and many others. Listen, there are all sorts of different chips for different types of uses. But, I mean, we grew up in a world where Andy Grove, I remember, you know, back in the early days when I was at Teams, Andy Grove was the king. And Intel was, without a doubt, the most preeminent, Ameri- one of the most preeminent American technology companies, if not. It's hard to bring that back. Well, you know. Chipsack nope. may help. Yeah, yeah, and Gelsinger thinks he's the right guy to do it. Um, you know, the market hasn't necessarily given him the benefit of the doubt beyond that very first day. You remember when he was, you know, named as he was coming back? Yes. No. Uh, the stock popped on these great expectations that, you know, Gelsinger was going to return this company to David's point to prosperity. And we're still waiting. Yeah, these things take a while. Oh, it takes a these while. Turnaround it's going to take a long time just to build the fabs alone that they plan to build in the United States, in part exactly. with help from the CHIPS Act. And, the R&D and aspect. And, yeah. I mean, there's finding a the workers, Finding the workers is not yes. easy either. Yeah. TSMC, which is trying to do that in Arizona, will tell you as well. It's just not that easy. Yeah. Well, we've got a ton of other earnings to hit with names like Roku, Mondelez, and Sweetgreen on the move, taking a look at futures at this hour in the green. You can see there, Dow is indicated to open about 170 points higher this morning. More Squawk on the Street when we return. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. While EV adoption is still growing, the paradigm has shifted. EV price premiums over internal combustion vehicles fell more than $3,000 in the second quarter and nearly $5,000 in the first half. We expect the EV market to remain volatile until the winners and losers shake out. All right, let's take a look at shares of Ford. That was Jim Farley, the company's CEO, of course, on the conference call after earnings. You can see not much of a move there. Uh, you know, Jonas, who uh, follows the company closely, of course, uh, and Morgan Stanley, the analyst, the tale of two auto companies, Ice Beats, but Scott, they talk about EV retreating. Um, and obviously, he talked about some of the challenges and opportunities that they see in that market. Such an important one for them as they retool the company. Yeah. So they cut the right. They they just cut the F one fifty Lightning by ten grand. Mm-hmm. They're trying to stimulate sales. It's interesting to hear Farley just, you know, say the market's going to be volatile until the winners and losers shake out. You could make the argument that it's already shaken out. Yep. And that the winner is Tesla and the loser is everybody else. Uh, because it's been able to distance itself to some degree. You know, Musk putting growth over profitability the way he has by simply cutting prices, David, to the degree they have repeatedly, and he may not be done, to continue to spur sales. You look at the stock performances we have on here, what Tesla, um, you know, over a long, you know, Tesla, this maybe is obviously not representative of, uh, of what the, the stocks have done versus one another. 
Ford shares have, for the most part, not been able to get out of their own way. Tesla shares have had uh, a remarkable. There's, there's a better representation on your screen of, of what I'm talking about. The winning, okay. Winners, losers. There is a winner, and there are many losers to, to date, to this point. Whether the GMs and the Fords and some of these others can make up some of the slack is the to the conversation of Ford, um, you know, as things shake out, they can't, they can't afford to not be in this space, right? If this is where consumers are going, they can't just, com you know, pivot completely and be like, we're not, we're not going to do EVs at all. Um, but I think the pricing dynamic is an interesting one that really does need to be sorted out and who has the ability to, to charge more for these vehicles, who does need to maintain kind of a, you know, a Tesla model of, of cutting prices to get more scale, more share amid all of this competition uh, is really interesting here, um, especially as, you know, Adam Jonas says they expect major changes in Ford's EV strategy may be necessary. Is that price? Is that production? Is that the vehicles themselves to make them potentially more appealing uh, to consumers? Is that the manufacturing process? I mean, all of these different levers that can be toggled, but as you mentioned, Scott, time is of the essence. I mean, you can't just do this over the period of years. The, the, the chips are falling now, so you have to kind of claim your, your, your rightful place in the EV history world. You know, I think what was most, in some ways, telling uh, from the Ford call is he talks about their strategy at Ford to have an 8% margin on EVs. And to your point, Scott, and to the pricing power that Tesla has, and 8%, I mean, that shows the difference there. They, they were coming down from what were the margins originally? As much as 15%, maybe more at Tesla? 20%. I mean, ultimately you're going to... And, you know, they, they have that pricing power in part because you're talking about companies that are one day hoping to get a margin that Tesla's far exceeded. You're going to have to ask your question. I, I ask the question, I guess, is to, you know, the consumer who is even interested in an EV... Are they interested in anything other than a Tesla if they're interested in an EV? Mm -hmm. And that's what the Farleys and the Mary Barras of the world, General Motors obviously, CEO, um, are trying to figure out. As to your point, Les, I mean, they have no choice but to invest in, in, in that part of their, their business. But it's a hard world to be in when you know Musk continues to eat everybody else's lunch because he has an ability to not care about profitability in the way that some of these other CEOs don't have a choice. Investors don't care whether Musk weighs on profitability or not. They care about growth. Are investors in General Motors and Ford willing to overlook profitability in EVs the way they are in Tesla? I don't know. Well, and how much brand affinity is there if you've owned GM cars your whole life, if you've owned Ford cars your whole life, do you one day pivot to a Tesla or do you stick with that brand just because that's what you know, you know where the dealerships are, you know where to get its service? I don't know how strong those bonds really are, especially when you're looking at just such a different model 
um, you know, in terms of EVs and, and the other things that people look for. It's just not not your traditional car shopping experience. Yep. David's David's going through a press release. I, he'll, yeah, he'll be I'll back with us in a second. Do that. Do, yeah. Take a look. We'll we'll just let's note the market uh, as well because we've gotten out of the gates pretty well, right? The Dow okay. Street was ended at, at 13 in a row as a you know yields move higher yesterday. A lot of eyes were on the Bank of Japan and this policy tweak as it's being called, uh, but nonetheless. We're higher across the board. Dow is up just about 200 points. Earnings, Leslie, as we've been going through this morning uh, and, and what happened this week, oh, yeah. pretty good uh, yeah. across the board. Certainly better than feared. There were some questions as to better, whether better than feared was going to be good enough, whether the market was going to be receptive enough to better than feared. It certainly seems like that narrative that's been in the market isn't ready to change yet. Earnings leading the Dow to the upside here. You've got Intel up 4%, Procter & Gamble up 2%. Uh, largely, a lot of green on the screen for those names. Um, you know, the, the biggest laggards are Cisco Chevron, which, as David pointed out, um, you know, pre-announced and is down only about 0.74%. So so nothing, nothing crazy. But, um, yeah, a lot of green on the screen for... For a Friday, of course, we've got that PCE data, what the Bank of Japan did, markets really distilling that and how it interplays with, with the U.S. markets What as I well. want to talk to you about, too, uh, Les, is right in your wheelhouse is the financials. You've got these new capital requirements, some questions yep. about whether you're going to have the same degree of buybacks that you've gotten as well. Uh, financials have done next to nothing this week. Now, over a month, they've been one of the, one of the best performing sectors, up 7%. They really got, actually, the, the best performing sector over a one-month period of time, financials. Yeah. Because the stocks reacted very positively to earnings in a way in prior, prior quarters, they haven't. It was the banks within the financials, which I think a lot of people were surprised about because talking about negative earnings revisions, the banks saw a lot of those revisions come down over the last few months in the wake of what happened in March and April with the, with the banking turmoil. The biggest winners, if you look at kind of the, the bank stocks that have done the best, especially since then, it's basically the, the banks that acquired assets of the failed banks. JP it's Morgan? JP Morgan. Um, it's New York Community Bank Corp, which I don't know if you saw this, but they got an upgrade today on the prospect. They, they acquired the signature assets um, on the prospect of them just dominating more share as a result of that. Um, and those who who acquired um, Silicon Valley Bank as well. Babes, you good? Yeah, I wanted to, I was trying to review the charter release, uh, one of the larger cable companies in the country there. We're taking a look at... That's New York Community Bank Corp, what I was just talking about. Got it. Um, because we also got uh, T-Mobile. Let's, let's dive into these two if we can. Um, T-Mobile, of course. And again, we've been, it's funny, we've been talking in various ways about Tesla versus Ford, Intel's decline over a period of years, and then there's Verizon and AT&T and the competition they've faced from the likes of this company, which has the largest market cap of any of the wireless companies out there, uh, by a, a pretty substantial margin over Verizon. I can remember when they passed it, uh, it was either earlier this year or last year, but you can take a look. And, and it continues uh, at this point. Postpaid net account additions, 299,000. Postpaid net customer additions, 1.6. Um, million uh, churn was 0.77% churn in the industry overall. Verizon churn is very low too. They added 9,000 postpaid. Uh, AT&T had a pretty good quarter on that front as well, although neither stock responded very well to earnings. There is that concern about the lead wrap cables most heavily when it comes to AT&T, although they have responded to it less so for Verizon and virtually nil for for T-Mobile. Uh, it's just not a concern. There's no legacy business there in terms of having this stuff buried in the ground. So uh, you can take a look at AT&T shares, which have just been 
disastrous over the last year uh, at this point. Not so for T-Mobile, of course, but again, not a great response in the stock uh, market. The stock hasn't done much anything this year. It's, let's call it flat, but flat is not bad for this sector, yeah. given you've had declines of AT&T of 20%, Verizon of 14%. Uh, the continued competition, obviously, is not just limited to the three companies, but includes our parent company, Comcast, which we talked about yesterday, added, what was it, 340,000 or so, I think, wireless subscribers. And for its part, Charter adds um, 648,000 um, mobile lines. Uh, that's both residential and small and medium business mobile lines. Uh, you know, you may see the... Uh, the ads everywhere for Spectrum. 6.6 million now they have total mobile lines at uh, at Charter. And this is the evolving competition we've talked about, the MVNO that they both have with Verizon to resell essentially the Verizon network, has proved to be an important competitive <clears throat> help to both Comcast and Charter. Charter shares overall up a bit, not as uh, not nearly the reaction that our parent company Comcast got yesterday and actually seeing a bit of follow through today as well after it uh, bested expectations. Uh, Charter for its part uh, had second quarter adjusted EBITDA 5.5 billion. That was up 0.2% and top line there as well up just ever so slightly. Uh, second quarter revenue is 13.7 billion, up 0.5%. But you know, we talk so often about this video customers, they just continue to be in seminal decline. They're giving year over year numbers here. So a year ago, uh, they had total video customers at Charter of 15.495 million. Now they have 14.7. So that just gives you a sense as to what's going on. Uh, June 30, 2022 versus June 30, 2023. And that's only increasing in terms of accelerating, in terms of cord cutting, which of course we talk about all the time, what it means for the likes of a Disney, for a Paramount, for Roku? An NBC Roku. Universal, for a Roku. maybe for a Roku. Fifth, as, up, up 16% as we speak. By yeah. The uh, again, there it may be a function of just not as bad a quarter as people had anticipated, I guess, Scott. But I don't have all the specifics on Roku. You can see what's happened to that stock. The only thing I see is a narrower than expected loss to your point of being you know, better than feared. Uh, but better than feared in this kind of market is, is good enough in, in some cases. And maybe that's the overarching theme of earnings season as a whole, yeah, just better than feared. And you could say that about the prior earnings season and the one before that, because you don't have a rally the likes of which we've had in the markets overall, unless you have put in the books better than feared earnings seasons, plural. Well, and of course, investors try and kind of garner a read through from advertising from the companies that have already reported. Uh, you know, Roku can showcase that they're, they're doing a little bit better than that. You get a 16% pop. But there are so many interesting dynamics going on in that space right now, especially with, you know, the writers and the actor strike and the ability to continue churning out content in the current environment. Um, you know, the market just had a lot of kind of negativity surrounding that name that just better than feared, as you mentioned, enough to get a 16 percent pop uh, today. Um, M&A, as you both know, has been relatively muted throughout much of this year. But one area that we continue to see are these big premium um, purchases by, let's call it Big Pharma. In this case, not quite as big. It's Biogen on the buy side. It's a company called <clears throat> Riata Pharmaceuticals on the sell uh, side here. Um, we're talking about uh, rare diseases, uh, product development, global commercialization. Uh, they're dealing here with uh, what they call serious neurologic diseases. They do have an FDA-approved 
first and only approved treatment for something called Friedrich's ataxia in the U.S. Um, Biogen's buying them. The premium is quite significant, 172.50. The stock was trading about 109 yesterday. Um, and the expectation is it will, of course, boost that rare disease portfolio. Biogen's been in focus in part because of their continued efforts to try to come up with uh, significant advancements in terms of combating Alzheimer's um, with some success, previously not as much. But here again, 172.50, uh, they've already got the vote uh, of 36% voting power of um, uh, certain stock agreements they already have from stockholders there. Question, of course, in many of these becomes antitrust. You don't expect to see it. You just never know when, no. when the you know Amgen Horizon. Nobody expected the FTC was going to have any issues whatsoever. In fact, they have. They're scheduled to go to court perhaps in September. We'll see whether there's a, a settlement that takes place prior to that. Um, and Lena Khan, who joined us last week here, uh, was also at the Economic Club of New York earlier this week. Um, answering questions, I think it was from Peter Orzag, but she spoke specifically and sort of in an interesting way about this very subject of big pharma buying smaller competitors. Take a listen. We've also heard from some capital allocators about the ways in which having a smaller number of exit paths or just a handful of companies that are going to provide that commercialization that, they, that there is a worry that that in and of itself is also dampening the valuation or kind of impeding their ability to actually negotiate on the deal terms. And so even if at the end of the day, you're gonna have to have some of those acquisitions for that commercialization path, more competition and more jostling among the potential buyers, we think is ultimately also gonna be better uh, for the innovators themselves, as well as ultimately for you know the trajectory of, of innovation. Hmm essentially seems to be saying she'd like to see more competition amongst big pharma to buy these, although my sense is, having followed it pretty closely in some cases, not this one, that there's a plenty of competition amongst the Pfizer's, oh, yeah. the, um, the Merck's, the Bristol-Myers, the Lilly's, you know, you go on and on from there, um, the Glaxo's for these very uh, companies that are at the forefront of innovating but when they get to that point where they've hit commercialization, they don't have the sales forces, they don't have the ability to actually bring the thing to market in an effective way. And that's the plan. The plan is to do some really good science, find some really great compounds, develop them, get them to phase two, maybe phase three, and then sell to Big Pharma, a la what they're doing here with Riata. And this is an all-cash deal. They're actually issuing debt, long-term debt in this market to buy the company yeah. uh, at a significant premium, which you really don't hear about much these days. Um, they're using cash on hand, a combination of cash on hand and uh, financing in the markets to do this. And so, um, you know, you've got the regulatory uncertainty, financing, maybe a less, less of an uncertainty there, but, um, you know, big deals are hard to come by this year. And they last are. Year. They are. I am so, hearing. I am hearing generally a lot more conversation. I think I've said this a number of times from the M and A professionals that, that I tend to speak to with some somewhat of a regular basis. So there is some hope for later in the year mm -hmm. that we may start to see stuff. But again, that lady you just heard from, Lena Khan, she looms large in the thinking of many who are considering deal making. And her counterpart at the DOJ, Jonathan Canner, who we often mention as well, who runs antitrust at that, uh, at that regulator. Um, they loom large because you, even if you think you can win in court, the idea that you might have to go to court in the first place may mean, let's not bother. Unless, unless you think you can win. 
and yeah. maybe more do think that they can win, even if they have to go that road. I mean, the FTC, David, to me, continues to, they keep talking tough, but their track record doesn't necessarily back up the bark. Yeah. yeah. Right? No. But the idea is talk tough and try to just stop people from even thinking about doing something as opposed to, uh, and, and freeze the market. I yeah. think that is as much part of the strategy, Scott, as anything else. But you're right. Now the question though still becomes, all right, you, you're willing to go to court because we think you can win, but that's gonna be 18 months. Who yeah. knows, could be even two years. You really wanna take that amount of time that still is something that's difficult for some CEOs to process as something worth doing. Yeah, so much is on hold when you're in, in the process of closing a merger in those 18 months. You know, you you miss out on other strategic investments you could be doing. Um, you miss out on certain hires because you're you're just in limbo with regard to what your future looks like. You miss out on certain strategy decisions. You can't make uh, as many decisions in terms of supply chain changes or R&D. So, um, you know, that's kind of why you see such a freeze on the market is because people don't want to, you know, go through that opportunity cost of 18 months of just lost time, as well as, of course, litigation expense, which, yep, you know, no 18 doubt. months. <clears throat> and distraction, as we say. Um, Scott, I'm taking a look at mega cap tech, and it's leading the way yet again with the NASDAQ resuming what had been that significant rise yesterday. Very similar percentage increase yesterday at this time, only it obviously retreat as the day went on. Yeah. But Apple, Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, all up. Uh, more than one and a half percent. No direct correlation, but enough of one, I suppose, that across the entire curve, uh, yields are negative um, today. So that's not upsetting, that story. Again, we're looking ahead to next week, to David's point with uh, Megacap and Apple and, and Amazon, which are gonna be the last of the two of the Megacap tech stocks to report. The only one that really didn't do much this week, I don't know what it's up for the week or, or down, is, is Microsoft, but otherwise, it's been, it's been pretty good uh, across the board in, in all of those names. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point here. And just kind of looking at the, the treasury complex as well, um, because we were kind of anticipating or, or looking into some, some moves on that front with the BOJ uh, news and what it meant for some repatriation of cash, um, potentially selling some of, uh, you know, U.S. government debt yeah. uh, in favor of, of Canada. You mentioned the treasury complex. That actually heads us to the bond report, Leslie. Well done. Good segue. I, you know? That's why they pay me the big bucks Let's for my Birkin bags. <laughs> oh, yeah, those Birkin bags, which we know now go up to $300,000 yeah. each. All right, let's take a look at how Treasuries are faring this morning. You can see that two-year at 4893, 10-year 3.979% is what you get if you lend your money for 10 years to the U.S. government. We're back at this. Show you what the markets are doing. Dow and S&P on track for their third week in a row of gains. It's been in, very, in many respects a slow grind higher. Dow, as we said, you know, up every day this week before yesterday, and it's still only up two-thirds of 1%, 0.67% uh, on the Dow, which is good for 173. A reminder later, don't miss Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel. He'll be with me on Closing Bell today at 3 o'clock Eastern Time, get his take on what's going on with the Fed and where he thinks the market can go in the weeks ahead. Billion-dollar-plus deals in private equity have been scarce recently. According to S&P, 33 deals of that size have been announced so far this year, down from 96% last year. Deal value is down 62% year-over-year in the second quarter. And with the dearth of deals, fundraising has also slowed dramatically. It's down 20% to the lowest level in eight years. But I recently sat down with KKR's global head of private equity, Pete Stavros, for a Delivering Alpha newsletter, which you can subscribe to using that QR code on your screen there. And he said now is, quote, a great time to do deals. 
the data has shown over decades now, we got a lot of data on private equity outcomes. When the public markets are more volatile and when credit markets are uh, tighter, better return deals are done. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, that's the history. And it's logical because purchase prices are constrained because you can't borrow as much and the, the money you can borrow is more expensive. Uh, this is the time to, to be leaning in. Of course, the flip side is it's harder to exit and sometimes it can be harder to convince a seller at a lower valuation. But Stavros says those expectations are finally starting to adjust as there is a pretty long lag in the private markets relative to the public ones. David. Yeah, an important point he makes there, of course, again, that you can do your best deals in an environment like this, but you need prices to come down. And that adjustment period takes some period of time. Sellers... They can be kind of stuck. They look at you know the peer group, and especially when you got a rally like you do in the Nasdaq right now, in particular. Yeah. It can make it hard for those comparisons. So it's a it's a standoff. It's the epitome of financial psychology right here because people say, well, I was able to make five x last year or two years ago, most likely. Now I'm only down to three or four. Do I want to sell or do I want to just hang tight until things, you know, normalize? If that's the view that they think it is going to normalize. There's also the financing component, as we talked about earlier, um, you know, and just the yeah, the fundraising. If you don't have as much dry powder out there, although then a lot of them do because they haven't done as many deals over the last few years. In part, it. even prior to the move up in rates, there was a feeling that things were too expensive. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, I do continue to hear we're going to see some a lot more activity in PE. That may just be a hope instead of a reality. We'll see. We heard about this a little bit on the Goldman call. I think was that last week. I'm getting my weeks confused. Um, where they do expect that to pick back up because PE deals are a big driver of their investment banking business as well. Stocks Leslie. have done well. Yes. Over a month. Yes. KKR up eight. Blackstone 14 yep. percent. TPGA. And they're beneficiaries of those capital rules as well because the you know the business moves to the non-bank financials. Yep. Private markets. Mm-hmm. Scott Leslie, thank you so much for helping me through this hour. Thank you. Particular yeah. just being here in general, being you. Thank you, David. You're Anytime, welcome. David. <laughs> After the break, we're going to turn back to some of today's big earnings movers. We're back in two. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.